You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. A little bit about uh, the two aspects of uh, Jewish diversity that I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the class. The first is, uh, let's call it ethnic diversity, and the second is ideological diversity. So let's talk ethnic diversity first. So if you uh, recall... um, Last week, we uh, talked a little bit about ancient Jewish history. And we left off the story of ancient Jewish history, um, more or less, with the Babylonian exile in 586 BCE. Right? Um, So that was uh, when the Babylonian Empire conquered uh, the kingdom of Judah, destroyed the temple, killed or enslaved uh, um, most of the Jewish population, uh, but took a portion of the Jewish population uh, back to Babylonia um, uh, in uh, in captivity. Um, So that that moment uh, was the beginning of a few things. As I mentioned last week, it was in a lot of ways the, uh, the, um, the beginning of the codification of the Bible. It was also the beginning of uh, uh, what you might call um, the Jewish diaspora. All right? so, um, uh, so in traditional Judaism, there's um, one term that means in English two things, depending on your ideological position on it. The term uh, galut is the Hebrew term. Um, and depending on your ideological stance on it, it either means exile, meaning that the natural state of the Jewish people is to be in the land of Israel, and in particular in Jerusalem. And when you are, um, uh, and, it, and it wasn't the choice of the Jewish people to, uh, to uh, leave uh, Jerusalem in 586. Um, uh, but it also, uh, uh, depending on your, posi- your take on this, um, uh, isn't, the Jewish people's choice to return to the land of Israel either until the, until, uh, the Messiah comes. Um, uh, so there are Jews that did return to the land of Israel, but in some ways uh, the concept that the Jewish people are in Galut, are in exile, whether or not they live in the land of Israel or whether or not they live in Jerusalem, um, continues. The other way of looking at the term Galut is diaspora, which means that anybody who doesn't live outside the land of Israel, whether by force or by choice, um, is living in the diaspora. Um, so 586 BCE is really the beginning of the, we'll call it diaspora here. We'll take such an ideological stance, we'll call it diaspora here, um, is the beginning of the Jewish diaspora, meaning it's the first time in Jewish history where Jews lived really anywhere other than the land of Israel. Prior to that, being Jewish was almost synonymous with where it was you were living. Right? It was a, it was a local, tribal, nationalistic religion um, uh, interconnected with the land of Israel. That was changed in 586 BC, so you all, you all of a sudden had, um, had to have an ideological shift of what it meant to be Jewish if you weren't living in the land of Israel. But there, uh, but there became uh, a, a community of Jews uh, from that moment on who would always live outside the land of Israel. So um, I mentioned last week that uh, in 538, so about 50 years later, 
the Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire, and the Emperor of Persia, Cyrus, allows Jews who want to return to uh, Judah to do so, to Jerusalem they could uh, uh, do so. Um, and some Jews did, but other Jews decided to stay in Persia. Over the course of time, um, uh, Jews looked to that Persian community and said, oh, okay, you can be a Jew and not live in the land of Israel. So some Jews went back to Jerusalem, but other Jews said, okay, well, I want to live in Persia. And they lived, and Jews spread out all over the Persian Empire and continued to, to sprout communities of Jews, whether by migration or by conversion, all over the world. So that by the, which a process that continued um, as, uh, the, as Alexander the Great um, and the Greek Empire uh, uh, was uh, constantly in battle with the uh, Persian Empire, um, and Jews became uh, part of Greek-speaking places as well. They, you know, they interacted with and uh, connected with Greek-speaking people um, as they were interacting with the Persian Empire, and uh, and as the Greeks were interacting with the land of Israel too. The land of Israel periodically. We'll talk about this. Um, uh, um, in, in a while, we'll talk about Hanukkah. This is uh, um, overlapping in that story um, as well. When the, the encounter between um, the Jewish people in the land of Israel and the Greek empires. Um, so Jewish communities were sprouting in uh, the Mediterranean, in Greece, in Italy, um, and even into Europe, certainly in North Africa and Egypt and in places like that, there were Jewish communities. Um, that all really begins after 538, or after 586, but after 538, um, and continues for the next several hundred years. There are Jewish communities in the land of Israel, but also all over, at that time, the known world, stretching as far as um, uh, as, as places like India and, and things like that. Because the Persian Empire itself stretched to, uh, to India. Um, part of Jewish history is the story of Jewish interaction with large and powerful um, outside cultures and outside forces, many of which stood in opposition to um, uh, traditionally minded Jews. But uh, but nevertheless, always interacted in, um, in, in various either positive or somewhat neutral ways with the Jewish community so that Jews adopted or interacted with or blended in with the um, cultures that they were encountering, right? So when, um, when Jews were living in the Greek world, um, they um, adopted Greek practices and Greek manners of dress and Greek modes of thinking, right? So um, uh, Jews... Uh, uh, would learn and interact with, um, with, with Aristotelian philosophy and Platonic philosophy and things like that, um, with the Greek language, uh, later uh, Latin and, uh, and Roman culture as well. Um, so in, and in Persia, and it, everywhere where there were Jews living under other dominant cultures, which was almost the entire span of Jewish history, Jews were living under the sway and the influence of other cultures. There's only a very brief period um, uh, following the, um, uh, the return of the exiles to Judah in, uh, in 538, only a very brief period of Jewish self-rule after that. 
um, which is um, the result of the Hanukkah story. The Hanukkah story is about a Jewish rebellion um, that uh, managed to create an independent Jewish state that lasted for about a century. Um, uh, but that was it, right? And so before that, in 538, the Jews were able to go back to, to Jerusalem, but they were, it was still a Persian province, right? And, uh, um, uh, uh, and after the uh, Jewish self-rule um, uh, ended, um, it, Judah became a province of Rome. Right, following Rome, it was a province of uh, of uh, the Byzantine. Right, so it uh, um, so Jews only were were self ruled for a very short period of time. So Jewish communities um, uh, began to exist all over the known world, and depending on how those communities and the way in which those communities interacted with the cultures that surrounded them uh, uh, impacted the development of their own internal cultures. Right, so uh, Jews that lived under uh, um, under Roman rule uh, had different styles of speaking, manners of dress, customs, practices, approaches to the tradition than the Jews who lived under uh, under other uh, forms of rule. Um, Jews who lived under Greek rule had different forms than uh, Jews who lived under Persian rule. Um, After the fall of the Roman Empire, um, that was where a major shift began to take place in terms of the power structure of the areas where Jews were living. Um, there was the emergence of um, uh, first of the of, of the church in the east and the west, um, then the rise of Islam in um, in the eighth century, um, the emergence of uh, of, uh, of nation states um, in the uh, medieval period um, uh, in, in Europe. Um, and so Jews who lived in those different areas and different cultures who had different experiences depending on where they lived um, developed different customs and different traditions. Everybody with me so far? Yeah. This is a little bit convoluted uh, because we're talking about a large swath of history and a large expansive piece of geography. Right? Um, but Jews are living um, in a lot of different places. Um, the major categories of, uh, of, of Jews uh, that, uh, that, that emerged from the, that large period of time, that large geographic uh, stretch, are, uh, uh, grew to be, coalesced to be as follows. So you had the, the Jews of Europe, um, which, were, which became known as the, the uh, Jews of Ashkenaz. Ashkenazi Jews. Um, Ashkenaz is the Hebrew word for Germany. Um, so in Germany and France were, uh, for most of uh, um, the post-Roman period before the Enlightenment, so from, from you know, the 4th century CE until the, um, the 18th century, give or take, um, the, the largest Jewish communities... Uh, were in uh, were in places like France and Germany, uh, and and really the borderlands of France and Germany. Um, eventually, Poland and Russia and Eastern Europe as well. Um, but those Jews also were um, uh, uh, had the same kinds of cultures and practices and language as Ashkenazi Jews. Um, 
So, um, so Ashkenazi Jews, let's just focus on them for a second. Ashkenazi Jews um, uh, 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 developed in a world that was very hostile to Jews and Judaism. Medieval Christianity was uh, not a fan of the Jewish people by and large. Um, and, um, you know, we, you, you could talk about... Uh, anti-Semitism that might continue to exist in America today, uh, but you know the, the occasional scrawling of a swastika on a Jewish building, and even the occasional uh, nut job who uh, uh, goes and, and uh, uh, shoots up a JCC is nothing to compare to the hostility that was um, not only prevalent within society, but often sponsored by the state that existed in, um, in medieval Europe. Right? So uh, um, Ashkenazi Jews uh, uh, emerge in a very uh, uh, like hostile environment to Jews. It was like almost like a crucible. Right? Um, and so Ashkenazi Jews um, tended to be uh, very uh, inwardly focused and insular, very um, uh, academic. It's also where the stereotype of, um, of Jews as being obsessed with uh, money comes from in a lot of ways because um, uh, one of the few in medieval Christian in medieval Christian excuse me in medieval Christendom uh, Christians weren't allowed to lend money to other Christians um, and weren't allowed to uh, exchange be money exchangers either um, so Jews were the only ones who were allowed to have those crucial economic uh, positions um, and so were. Uh, those often aren't the kinds of people that you like tend to like interacting with, the people who are lending you money or changing you money. Um, so, um, so because it was predominantly Jews who were doing that work in Europe, and because people tended to not like people who were doing that kind of work, the image of a Jew as a hateful uh, um, uh, money grubber really emerges out of that context. Um, but it's also why... Um, the, uh, the the Jews of those communities uh, tended to live in what we would uh, what, what what would be known as shtetls. Shtetls are sort of like uh, self-contained, um, insular Jewish communities that have very little contact or interaction um, with the outside world, um, often by design, um, uh, because the outside world was uh, was hostile to Jews, and often by a, um, a decree of the uh, dominant. Power, right? So um, Jews didn't want to have interaction with uh, with with their uh, medieval Christian European neighbors, and the state didn't really want to have interaction with them either, except for the occasional um, attack on Jewish communities or crusade or something like that, right? Um, so the Judaism that emerges in um, in that context is very inwardly focused. Very focused on uh, the um, on the uh, development of internal Jewish questions, internal Jewish study. The um, the the model. I mean, Fiddler on the Roof Tevya is a great example. It's a later example because Tevya is set in the 19th century. So it's a later example, but a really but you get a picture. I mean, Jewish life didn't change all that much in the shtetl for Jews from you know from the from the fifth century to the 19th century um, uh, in in a lot of ways. The um, uh, um, education was primarily Jewish education, right? You didn't really learn. Uh, you may have learned uh, math. Um, but you weren't learning, you know, the masterpieces of, of Western literature when you were living in the in the shtetl in in, in Germany. Um, you were learning 
Tanakh, and you were learning Mishnah, and you were learning Talmud, and you were learning Jewish law, um, and the and the manner of engaging, interacting with those texts was sort of a a, a closed system. Um, so you weren't in the study of Talmud bringing in Shakespeare as a proof text to argue, um, or or as context you weren't bringing in you know Platonic philosophy, at least not self consciously. Um, so the uh, uh, um, often. Uh, 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 there were a lot of uh, superstitious and mystical customs that uh, that that emerged among um, uh, Ashkenazi Jews. So um, uh, there's a group of uh, Jews that existed in the early medieval period called the uh, Hasidic Ashkenaz, the the pious people of uh, of, of medieval Germany, um, and they were very uh, highly mystical. They had a very highly mystical and kind of superstitious uh, breed of uh, of, of Judaism. Contrast that with uh, the uh, the Sephardic Jews. Sephardic Jews are uh, Jews from uh, Spain and North Africa um, and uh, Southern Europe, Israel, Mediterranean region. Um, those Jews, for much of the period of history we're talking about. Um, lived under a much more open and uh, um, and let's call it multicultural society. So uh, predominantly in this period, first uh, they were living more or less in the Byzantine Empire, but eventually they were living under uh, Muslim rule. And it surprises a lot of Jews today to hear, uh, but it's very important, I think, to note that um, that Jews had a much better time living under Muslim rule than they did living under Christian rule. Um, uh, on, on nearly every level. So the, 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 the term, you guys have heard, I assume, of the term people of the book, right? The term people of the book is actually a Muslim term. It was a category that, that, uh, that the uh, Quran has for people who identified with Abrahamic faiths that weren't Muslims. So they were, um, they may have been taxed at a higher rate than Jews. They may have been uh, prohibited from being in some segments of society, but more or less they were um, uh, integrated and involved in every aspect of, of society. So um, Sephardic Jews tended to be uh, much more cosmopolitan, uh, much more worldly, much more, uh, broad, much more broadly educated um, in different uh, aspects of non-Jewish culture and, and tradition. Um, and so, the, the, um, so as an example of that, the, um, the great works of Jewish philosophy in the medieval period were almost all of them written by Sephardic Jews. The, the, the towering figure of medieval Jewish philosophy is a guy named Maimonides, Moses Maimonides, sometimes known as the Rambam. Um, Moses Maimonides, um, in addition to writing one of the most influential Jewish law codes of, his, of all history, wrote, uh, I think, probably the most influential book of Jewish philosophy of all time called The uh, Guide of the Perplexed. Um, and what the guide of the perplexed is um, is basically an attempt to reconcile Aristotle with traditional Judaism, right? And no one in medieval Europe was reading Aristotle except for maybe some uh, uh, some people holed up in monasteries. Um, you know, so Thomas Aquinas read Aristotle, right? But um, but Aristotelianism, Platonism was part of the um, intellectual conversation in um, in medieval Muslim countries. 
Um, there was a priority on education of the laity in those countries as well. Right? So there was always, even in medieval um, uh, Christian Europe, among the Jewish population, there was a prioritization of, of education of even the laity. So there were high literacy rates in, in the Jewish community where there weren't in, in other segments. But Jews there were learning Torah and Talmud in the Muslim world, Jews were in addition learning, in addition to learning the traditional texts of Judaism, were, um, were learning poetry and philosophy and mathematics. We have the Muslims to thank for algebra. Um, thank you uh, for that. Um, but, um, um, but Jews in those uh, um, uh, uh, cultures were, were engaged in the intellectual life of, uh, of those areas. So the great works of Jewish philosophy in the medieval period were written almost uh, 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 exclusively by Sephardic Jews. Um, the great works of uh, Jewish uh, um, uh, literature, poetry, liturgy um, were primarily lit- written by Jews living in Sephardic uh, communities. Um, uh, um, I mentioned the kind of... Um, superstitious mysticism of uh, Ashkenazi Jews, um, the mysticism that uh, grew uh, from Sephardic Jews um, is really the Jewish mysticism that we still have and is still relevant today. The Kabbalah, the great, the Zohar, the great works of Jewish mysticism that are in addition to being very um, philosophically and intellectually uh, astute and deep are also written in beautiful language. Um, those are products of Sephardic Jewish communities. Um, uh, uh, so, um, if you if you compare side by side um, the uh, the contributions and the cultures and the customs of Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, um, Sephardic Judaism tends to be more worldly, more uh, more urbane. Um, uh, so I'll just give you uh, one example of this, okay? So um, on Passover, um, one of the hardest aspects of Passover um, for, uh, for, for all Jews is um, the prohibition on eating what's called chametz during Passover. Chametz is... Um, any kind of uh, leavened food product, right? So the classic example is bread. You can't eat bread on Passover, but it's really anything that might contain any amount, uh, even a minuscule amount of uh, grain mixed with water left to uh, uh, sit for more in that mixture for more than 18 minutes. Um, that's chametz, okay? Um, so on top of that already very cumbersome prohibition, Ashkenazi Jews added a whole class of ingredients that aren't technically grains called kidneyot. Kidneyot are technically legumes, um, but the but Ashkenazi Jews added all sorts of things to the category of kidneyot, uh, things like uh, of legumes. So things like so not only are things like beans and and rice in that category, even though rice isn't a legume. Um, things like potatoes and corn and all sorts of stuff, which is why you know uh, like that's actually an article that says a lot about uh, uh, American society because everything is made with corn syrup now, um, and it probably shouldn't be. But that's actually what makes it uh, makes for Ashkenazi Jews living in America today who still. Uh, um, uh, don't eat kidney oat on Passover um, 
it makes it really hard to observe Passover in our, in our culture because everything has corn syrup in it and corn is considered to be kidney oat. Sephardic Jews don't have that additional prohibition. Right? Uh, are fine eating rice and beans, are fine eating corn, um, uh, are fine eating peanuts, right? all sorts of things. Hummus, chickpeas, right? Um, uh, um, so, um, uh, now, there are reasons why uh, um, Ashkenazi Jews added those bans, uh, additional bans on, uh, on, on Passover food. Sephardic Jews could have, too, for similar reasons, but the reasons Sephardic Jews didn't are twofold. First, uh, things like beans and rice were a staple of their diet, and if they cut them out, they wouldn't have had anything to eat. But also, th- this is really the truth of it, uh, and Spartac Jews today still say the same thing, which is, what are you, nuts, <laughs> right? Um, why, you already have a cumbersome prohibition, like why add more fuel to the fire? So, um, so that, I think, is actually a, uh, a characteristic of at least medieval Spartac Judaism, um, is that um, uh, is, is, a, is a sense of, okay, we, we already have a challenging tradition. Um, let's make it uh, uh, coincide as much as we can with the, with the needs and dictates of real life. Now, what we'll talk about in, in a few minutes when we talk about ideological diversity in, in the Jewish community, um, a lot of the ideological diversity that exists in the Jewish community today is a product of uh, the European Enlightenment in the 18th century and the reaction to the European Enlightenment in the 18th century, um, which Jews in Sephardic countries um, didn't undergo. Right? So Jews living in um, Egypt or Iraq, uh, well, Iraq's actually Mizrahi, but uh, uh, Egypt or the land of Israel, they weren't reading uh, John Locke. Right? And so they weren't having the same interaction and reaction to, um, uh, to uh, enlightenment that, um, that Ashkenazi Jews were. Um, and so that transformed Ashkenazi Judaism. So if you look at... Um, uh, the, the, the tenor of the conversation and the kinds of customs that, that exist and perpetuate in the Jewish community today, there is a certain, from a certain perspective, that status is kind of flipped, right? That, that uh, Ashkenazi Jews um, today tend to have a, a little bit more um, um, ideological flexibility than Sephardic Jews do. But, um, but the source texts from which we're all drawing um, our traditions from, um, uh, you, if you go back and look at them, um, uh, the Sephardic traditions uh, tend to be more sensitive to the needs and rhythms and dictates of real life and tend to be more um, uh, 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 educated in interaction with non-Jewish cultures and had positive interactions with non-Jewish cultures. The other... Uh, um, um, by the way, just uh, as an aside, Ashkenazi Jews, um, in addition to uh, you know knowing the Hebrew of the Bible and uh, the Aramaic of the Talmud, their everyday language was usually Yiddish. Uh, Sephardic Jews, um, uh, their everyday language was usually Ladino or uh, very often Arabic. Um, and so a lot of the great works of so the book that I mentioned before, The Guide of the Perplexed, written by Maimonides, um, originally written in Arabic. The third major category of, uh, of Jews um, are Mizrahi Jews. Mizrahi is the Hebrew word for Eastern. 
Um, so Mizrahi Jews are like uh, um, Jews from Persia, uh, modern-day Iran, Arabian Peninsula, um, uh, but also you know uh, other areas of the Middle East, Iraq, Syria. Um, um, depending on who you ask, Jews that uh, are f- from the Far East might identify more with uh, with with Mizrahi uh, customs and uh, of, of of Judaism. Um, most most of the Mizrahi Jews in the world today. Uh, now live in Israel. There was a mass migration of, uh, of Mizrahi. There, there's a large uh, Iranian Persian Jewish community in the United States, uh, and there still is a. You okay? Oh, okay. Um, uh, uh, so there's a large uh, Persian Jewish community in the United States, um, and there still is a, a decently sized uh, Persian community. Uh, uh, is still in Iran, um, but uh, in large part, the Jews of Iraq and Syria and Egypt um, and Saudi Arabia have, uh, over the course of time, um, either by need or by desire, uh, emigrated to uh, Israel. Even though they're also Jews of those persuasions, um, ethnic persuasions uh, in, in America as well. Now. Um, What's interesting about both the Israeli and the American Jewish experiments is that in some ways um, the distinction between uh, various of these communities is uh, um, uh, uh, blending together. Right? So there is um, uh, American Judaism historically was predominantly Ashkenazi which makes sense considering most of the um, early immigration to the United States, or before it was the United States, was from Europe, right? Um, so, you know, uh, England, France, Germany, whatever. Um, in Israel, um, there is a much larger uh, Sephardi and Mizrahi uh, uh, segment of the population. So the character of Israeli Judaism, even uh, in Ashkenazi communities, is really flavored and peppered by uh, Sephardic communities and Sephardic customs. Whereas in America, um, because the dominant form of Judaism is Ashkenazi Judaism, um, there's there, the... the um, uh, pull exists in the other direction for Sephardic communities to kind of conform with um, Ashkenazi practices. Um, and in a second, we're going to talk about the ideological divisions. Um, and in uh, uh, conservative and reform Judaism, especially, those are even have larger uh, um, uh, proportions of Ashkenazi Jews. Um, and so there's a uh, um, uh, less uh, influence and division of custom between Sephardi and Ashkenazi Jews in, in those camps. Um, so I, I gave like a couple of, uh, of little examples of, uh, of the difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews, um, but they're all, all manner of, uh, and, and things large and small, um, of, uh, of, of, uh, uh, distinctions of, of practice and custom. Um, uh, if you, if you go to a Sephardic prayer service, uh, versus an Ashkenazi prayer service, you'll note an, any number of differences in terms of the liturgy and the music. Um, 
the, the food cultures are totally different. So, you know, where uh, we were talking before about, you know, you know Kreplach and Kugel and things like that, um, a, Sephar- a Sephardi Jew who's like a really Sephardi Jew doesn't know from those things, right? Uh, you know, they eat uh, Kube and, uh, um, and uh, uh, things like that. Uh, tagines and, you know, all sorts of whatever. Uh, yeah, what? Harissa, right? Um, uh, uh, um, so everything from um, everything from approaches to Jewish law to customs related uh, or not related to Jewish law to cultural issues, um, there are differences among um, uh, Sephardi and Ashkenazi and Mizrahi Jews. Although um, all of them. Um, uh, utilize and interact with primarily the same source material, right? So they're all going back to the Tanakh. They're all um, uh, referencing, at least from a theoretical standpoint, the the, the Talmud and rabbinic literature, um, and um, and uh, for the most part, um, Ashkenazi Jews read and study um, the great works of the Sephardi tradition, especially uh, people like Maimonides and Nachmanides. Um, and the opposite is true, too. So Sephardi Jews, uh, by and large, will read uh, Rashi, who is uh, the um, probably the towering figure of Ashkenazi Judaism. Rashi was um, a uh, biblical and rabbinic commentator, also apparently a winemaker, um, uh, who lived in the 11th century in France. Um, Rashi is an acronym. It stands for Rabbi Shlomo, the son of Isaac, Solomon, the son of Isaac. Um, uh, so, um, uh, so, but Sephardic Jews read Rashi's commentary on the Torah and on the Talmud. Um, uh, so there is interaction uh, and appreciation between the groups, but they also have their own distinct characters and distinct uh, uh, cultures. Questions about uh, those distinctions, those divisions? For what it's worth, um, uh, Temple Beth El um, is predominantly Ashkenazi, and so most of our practices um, uh, are follow the Ashkenazi customs, um, although not all of them. Um, so periodically we'll do things according to the Sephardic custom too, um, especially when it's helpful for uh, <laughs> um, uh, some something we, you know, so like periodically the... Uh, the Haftorah portion, the portion of the prophets that we read on a Shabbat morning, is uh, is shorter for Sephardic Jews than for Ashkenazi Jews. So uh, you know, sometimes when that's the case, we'll sneak in the Sephardic uh, uh, custom. Yeah. Um, why is there so much uh, discrimination between the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic the, the Sephardic Jews in Israel? Oh, Ashkenazi like yeah, you want, I mean, you want my honest answer about it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, <laughs> uh, I had to be careful because this is podcasting, but uh, um, I can't think of a better way to put it, racism. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 um, white people seem to have uh, prevalent challenges with people of different skin colors. Um, I've watched you know, several Israeli movies, and it seems to me mm. that they that seems to be a subject that they yeah. quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, so if you want to see a great Israeli movie that deals with precisely that subject, Salah Shabbati. Oh, Salah Shabbati. Salah. And you can get, it's S-A-L-A-H um, S-H-A-B-A-T-I I think. 
Uh, and uh, uh, I don't know if you can get it on Netflix or what, uh, but you can get it subtitled because uh, it's all in Hebrew. Uh, but it's but it's great. It's about the you know because the early settlers in Israel were predominantly Ashkenazi Jews too. Um, they all came from uh, European countries uh, in large part because it was hard to be a Jew in European countries, and so they all you know so Zionism um, uh, 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 emerged as a as a uh, um, as an ideology um, in response to the uh, persistent anti-Semitism in Europe is that there's no safe place for, uh, for Jews. We need to create a sovereign Jewish uh, uh, homeland um, where you can be safe as Jews. So the early settlers, the early Zionists were almost all of them Ashkenazi Jews from France and Germany and things like that. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, Herzl was, um, what's that? Herzl was a strong Zionist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Herzl was uh, was was German, right? He wrote uh, um, the um, his uh, uh, masterpiece of uh, of, uh, of uh, where he laid out his Zionist vision was called Der Judenstaat, right? The Jewish state, but in German, written in German. So. Um, uh, so anyway, so so um, uh, now Israel has a larger. Uh, Percentage. I don't know exactly what, how the breakdown is, although I think it's uh, the Sephard- Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews may be the majority in Israel now. Um, although maybe it's changed since the influx of Russian Jews uh, in the in in the eighties and nineties. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, th- there's there's a lot of that. Yes. So the, there, there was a lot of that in uh, uh, in, in the U.S. because um, the, the the earliest Jewish populations in the U.S. tended to be Western European, uh, German especially, um, and then all of a sudden in the late nineteenth, uh, early twentieth century, there was a massive immigration of Eastern European Jews to the United States, and there was a lot of animosity between those two communities. Um, yeah, right, right. Intermarriage used to mean marriage between a German Jew and a Russian Jew, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so, um, okay. So, is it, it's important to note that, that for most of the period we're talking about now, the um, ideological denominations of Judaism that, uh, that, that characterize the Jewish landscape today, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Reconstructionist, none of that exists. 
right? Not even Orthodox exists, right? There's just, there's just Jews. There's Sephardi Jews, there's Ashkenazi Jews, there's Mizrahi Jews, but there's just Judaism. There are these organic Jewish communities that exist. They're not um, uh, ideological in, uh, they're not uh, ideologically aware, right? So they're, they're, they're not self-conscious about their approach to Judaism, Right? It's a sort of organically, naturally um, uh, living and breathing and evolving Jewish communities. Um, it's especially true in Europe, where there's not self-consciousness really about, uh, about you know, uh, the approach to Judaism. Um, because they're not living really in interaction with a philosophical tradition um, which would advocate for self-consciousness about, um, about how you think and why you think that way, etc. Right? Until the Enlightenment. Okay? So the Enlightenment in the um, uh, 18th century in Europe um, opens up the, uh, the, the avenues of access of the Jewish community um, in Europe to, um, to, the, uh, to the people and institutions of, uh, of, of the countries that they're living in, right? So it, it all of a sudden becomes fashionable um, to advocate for what was called emancipation. And emancipation means that um, all these uh, uh, groups, Jews especially, but there were other groups as well, that were classically um, uh, given uh, at, at best a second-class status in those societies, um, were uh, um, were emancipated, which means that given the full rights um, and privileges of being citizens of whatever country it was that they were living in, um, and so there was a lot of uh, there became a lot of brand new interaction with uh, those outside cultures. One of the um, outcomes of that was uh, what in Hebrew is called the Haskalah, um, which means uh, the in Hebrew it means the Enlightenment. There was not only a secular Enlightenment in Europe, but there was a Jewish Enlightenment in Europe. It was uh, uh, Jews all of a sudden started reading um, the, um, the 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 you know uh, Rousseau and and Locke and Montesquieu, all these uh, uh, figure, Enlightenment figures, and uh, they started also. Uh, having access to uh, university study and the scientific study of text and literature and history and archaeology that they never had before. And there was a new movement in Europe um, uh, among Jews to think critically and self-consciously about what it meant to be Jewish, which inevitably led to proposals for, um, for adapting or changing uh, uh, the approach to Judaism that, had, uh, that people had historically lived by, um, in part because of a desire to um, align Judaism with, uh, with what were becoming to be understood ideological truths and, and, uh, and, and positive innovations in society, democracy, freedom, uh, etc., um, and academic integrity, right? So um, one of the um, great breakthroughs, which I mentioned uh, last week, is that um, uh, the, the uh, critical study of literature and the development of, uh, of the fields of history and archaeology enable people to advance a theory that the Bible may have been not written by God, but written by people, and in particular written by uh, a number of different people over the course of time, right? But if you're if you're a Jew who had historically uh, seen the Bible as the um, um, infallible, unalterable word and will of God, um, 
the notion that it was written not only by a person, but by many people over a period of time was nothing short of revolutionary. And it changes everything about um, how one interacts with the Jewish tradition. Right? If the Bible is um, unalterable and infallible and the word of God, right, then, then, then fealty to its commandments has to be absolute. Um, and one would, be, one would tend to be very conservative with a small c, about the application of the laws of the Torah. Right? You want to be very careful when you're saying, you know, how do I do X, Y, or Z practice that the Torah says about that you are trying to get it right. right? Because if you don't, then um, you, know, you might you know, burn in hell or whatever. So, um, uh, but if you don't see the Bible as the infallible word of God, but the product of human beings, even if they're divinely inspired, uh, then it changes your approach. It means that you could say, you know, some things are wise and good in the Bible, and other things um, we may be better off understanding in their context and leaving them contextual. Um, and in addition to that, emancipation um, opens up the possibility of Jews to be full participants in society, which is very hard to do if you still look like the Jew and act like the Jew who lived in the shtetl and talk like the Jew who lived in the shtetl, right? I can't become a, a, a German lawyer if I'm still wearing my strimal and have my payas and, uh, and speak Yiddish, right? And so <clears throat> um, there, was, there became, a, a, the confluence of those things um, led a lot of Jews to, uh, to, to start a movement to reform Judaism. Right? They wanted to make Judaism more modern, more contemporary, less tribalistic, um, to, to be able to have a Judaism that could fit in with the broader culture, um, that was focused on um, uh, the ethical aspects of Judaism, some of the... Uh, uh, some of, the, some of the distinguishing practices of Judaism, but that would jettison some of the things that um, were seen as um, tribal relics that no longer had relevance or meaning for, con- for the contemporary period, and all they seemed to serve to do was to make Jews look and sound and act different than everybody else. So in the 19th century in Germany, there's a movement to reform Judaism in exactly those ways. And I say it in that way because it wasn't called the reform movement yet, but eventually it is. Eventually, um, they, uh, the people who are leading this uh, movement um, gather together and, uh, and say this is actually a new kind of Judaism that we're advancing. In response to that, there are some uh, Jews, and, and notably a rabbi named Samson Raphael Hirsch, who says... What are you talking about reform Judaism? There's no such thing as reforming Judaism. There's either Judaism or not Judaism. And you can choose not Judaism if you want, but you can't say that Judaism is something you can reform. Judaism was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai in its entirety. Um, and, uh, and the way we practice Judaism now is the way Moses practiced Judaism then. And there's no such thing as reforming Judaism. There's only Judaism. So, Hirsch and others who thought similarly essentially created a movement in response to Reform Judaism that they called Orthodoxy. Now, Orthodoxy was um, uh, um, uh, honest in a sense, 
um, that um, the Judaism that they pra- that that Jews were practicing in 19th century Europe was probably um, very similar to the Judaism that was practiced a thousand years before, fifteen hundred years before, even two thousand years before. Um, they were, I think, not quite honest, um, and may, uh, maybe dishonest is a bad way of putting it, uh, not quite accurate, I guess I would rather say. And, and by the way, you have to take this all, you know, you have to know the, the perspective of the person speaking to you, because I'm a conservative Jew, and so I'm telling this from trying to be as, as academically um, impartial as I can, but this is my perspective. So... Um, Dishonest, I think, was not the right term. Uh, inaccurate in the sense that, um, and I think that, that in part they didn't really realize this. They didn't really, because uh, they weren't studying the texts scientifically or academically, that there was um, a, a tremendous amount of change over time. Um, maybe in subtle ways, maybe in, uh, in somewhat indistinguishable ways, but of, uh, of, of Judaism over the course of history. And it uh, also um, failed to take into account the fact that there is uh, a lot of, even before that, there was a lot of Jewish diversity um, of practice and custom, depending on where it was you were a Jew. So modern orthodoxy that, that, uh, that, that formed as a response to reform Judaism um, basically froze Judaism in a particular moment in time and said, this is authentic Judaism. Anything that's not this doesn't count. Excuse me, yes. was that uh, Mordechai Kaplan? No, Mordechai Kaplan is much later. Mordechai Kaplan is about a century later. Um, a century and a half later. Um, everybody with me so far on that? Right, so orthodoxy is defined uh, by a um, by a sort of rigid approach to uh, to the texts and traditions of Judaism. Right, this is a received tradition; it is uh, divine and infallible. Um, the loyalty to the commandments is absolute and uh, and inflexible, um, and change, if it happens at all, happens extremely slowly and only naturally. There's no, there's no uh, conscious acts of change within Judaism. Yeah, frankly. So, uh, ritual in ancient Judaism with uh, animals and that type of thing, they, obviously they didn't believe that. Correct. But so how could they say that this was, what's the rationale of saying Judaism does not change when it was a gigantic change? Yeah. Right, so they would say that that change was imposed on Judaism directly by God. <laughs> right, uh, so I mean, it was. Well, I mean, the Bible itself says that uh, the destruction of Judah and the exile to Babylon, so therefore the destruction of the temple, was um, was orchestrated by God. Right, um, and um, and and uh, there is. Plenty in the received tradition um, that says um, that says things like, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob instituted uh, a verbal Jewish prayer, right? So they had a lot to rely on to say that the ways Judaism evolved in the absence of sac- the sacrificial system um, was not only divinely mandated but also um, not a ch- not a change. We lost something, but uh, but it wasn't a conscious and deliberate change of Judaism. 
they would acknowledge, of course, that something changed. But the question is, what's the what's the context of that change? What's the direction of that change? Um, that's that's the issue. Um, the Reformed Jews would say, here's a revolution in Judaism. Here's how we know Judaism is a human phenomenon and changes over time, and why we can say we can we can go out of our way. They reformed Judaism then. That's a big reform of Judaism. No more sacrifice. So why can't we reform Judaism now? That's what they would have said, right? Um, <clears throat> any other questions or, or comments about that before I go on? All right. There still is sacrifice among some groups. Yes, that's true. Um, <laughs> although uh, uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch probably didn't uh, didn't really know about uh, the um, the Samaritans uh, in uh, um, uh, in in uh, uh, on Mount Greasy. Um, all right. So. Uh, um, Mainly as um, an outgrowth of Reform Judaism, there were uh, a number of Jews who said, um, "I agree in principle with um, uh, with the approach of Reform Judaism, in that Judaism is a uh, human and historical phenomenon. It was uh, um, uh, created by human beings, maybe divinely inspired human beings, but by human beings, um, and has changed." sometimes unconsciously, sometimes consciously over the course of time. Um, uh, However, um, uh, Reform Judaism went too far, was too cavalier with the changes it wanted to make, wasn't loyal enough to the received tradition and the the, uh, classical forms of Judaism, structures of Judaism, rituals of Judaism. Um, right, just because you didn't, you, you know, you didn't want to keep kosher doesn't mean that uh, keeping kosher isn't a positive feature of Judaism and one that uh, that that commands our um, our uh, our loyalty and respect. Um, so uh, this group of Jews that saw Jews as a positive historical phenomenon, but also one that uh, um, that that carried with it um, uh, um, a lot of. Um, uh, um, need for uh, loyalty to the received tradition um, wanted to in the face of reform Judaism but uh, also in the face of orthodoxy say we want to conserve Judaism right? which means that um, we want to to the best of our ability maintain a Judaism that, uh, that has all the features of a traditionally received Jewish practice and, uh, and, and tradition um, but um, we also know that Judaism. We believe that Judaism is a human phenomenon. So we so and we know that because it's a human phenomenon, it has changed over time, and human beings have been instrumental in changing uh, Judaism over time. That while we will conserve Judaism, we believe that it's possible at times where it's necessary to consciously make changes in Judaism to, uh, to, to align it with new insights, um, uh, you know, new practices, um, uh, you know, new, new uh, technology, new phenomenons, what, phenomena, whatever, uh, whatever it is. So I use that term conserve deliberately to indicate that that is the origins of the conservative movement. Right? And the conservative movement is 
something of a middle ground between orthodoxy and reform and, uh, and, and was born that way. Um, so, it, so conservative Judaism um, believes in Judaism as a, as a, a human historical phenomenon, but um, uh, sees uh, uh, the received tradition as something to which Jews have an obligation to uphold. Right, Reformed Jews don't see it as something that Jews have an obligation to uphold. They see it as something that Jews can voluntarily uphold if they want, but don't see it as something that Jews have an obligation to uphold. Conservative Jews say that we have an obligation to uphold the received tradition. However, embedded within the received tradition is the capacity to change it over time if it needs to be changed. The other major movement uh, that, uh, uh, that, that now exists beyond orthodoxy, conservative, and reform Judaism is Reconstructionist Judaism. So Reconstructionist Judaism was founded by a very interesting character named Mordechai Kaplan. Mordechai Kaplan was trained as an orthodox rabbi, uh, but taught at uh, the Jewish Theological Seminary, which was the American center of conservative Judaism for uh, for. Uh, for many, many years. Um, it still is a major center of conservative Judaism uh, uh, today. Um, and Mordechai Kaplan um, uh, um, was very focused on um, the, the human role in the development of Jewish history um, and saw in his time, um, uh, he, he was in the... Um, really, he came... His like intellectual peak was like the middle part of the 20th century. And so he saw um, the the great advances of uh, of, of science um, and of uh, 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 scientific study, um, and uh, and he you know deduced from that that the the way Jews, even liberal Jews, had classically viewed God, um, is not really aligned with uh, with with the insights of contemporary uh, science. Um, so he said that, uh, that um, not only was Judaism a uh, primarily human phenomenon, he wrote a great book called, uh, well, great by, in the sense that it's like big and important, not necessarily great in terms of like its page-turningness, uh, but uh, a book called Judaism as a Civilization. Um, and Judaism as a Civilization posited that Judaism is, is a, an evolving religious civilization. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a, 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 a people-centered phenomenon. Um, and he wrote another book, I think a really an important companion book, although he, I don't think he intended it as a companion book, called The, the Meaning of God in Modern Jewish Religion. Um, and, uh, and what he argued in that book is that uh, um, from virtually all of Jewish history, Jews have believed in what, what's, what often is called a personal God, right? which means that a God that most people relate to and interact with like another person. Right? So the God has a name, and that God you know, does actions and speaks and does all sorts of things that a person would do. Right? Um, and Kaplan said there, that version of God has, has no uh, philosophical merit. Right? Has no, uh, uh, it doesn't make sense. Um, based on what we know about the way the world works. And so he argued for God, he called God the power that makes for salvation. Right? So God isn't a person, um, 
quote-unquote person. God doesn't speak. God doesn't act. God isn't a he or a she. God is a, fo- God is a force, right? God is uh, maybe not the force. You can't use God to like, you know, lift ships out of water. Uh, but God is the, is, the, uh, um, uh, is the power, the force within uh, um, uh, history that helps propel people toward greater, greater novelty, greater discovery, greater uh, ingenuity. So Reconstructionist Judaism is this interesting kind of blend of um, uh, of, uh, of of really of reform and conservative Judaism um, in that that it really tries to kind of look for the um, uh, uh, for the uh, um, aspects of Jewish practice that are um, That are like civilizational, right? That uh, that um, to um, to understand Judaism in the context from which it emerged, and say that each contemporary Jewish community is its own iteration of that evolving religious civilization, and therefore the community has the capacity to determine what Judaism is going to look like for for it. So how that's different from reform is that reform says that the decision about what Judaism is going to look like is actually ultimately up to the individual, right? Um, the individual being a, a conscious uh, um, and uh, um, um, independent uh, actor, right? That's you know, very, you know, John Locke, right? Very enlightenment philosophy. Um, the individual has the right to determine what is, you know, this X, Y, Z text mean, what practice is going to be the practice I want to follow and what practice is going to be the practice I don't want to follow. Conservative Judaism says that the individual, I mean, certainly obviously has the right to do any of those things, but from the context of Judaism, um, they don't have the right, right? So Judaism, the, from the conservative point of view, um, Judaism can change, but change isn't implemented uh, by, by, the, by the conscience of the individual the change in Judaism is uh, implemented um, uh, through the um, uh, collaboration and discussion and debate and um, uh, and advancement of its religious leaders. Reconstructionism is uh, is is a little bit like reform in the sense that um, that the individual has the capacity to determine what Judaism is going to look like. But when uh, Reconstructionism says the individual, what they mean is the individual community. Right, so um, the community decides what Reconstructionism looks like, what Judaism looks like in that time. So it's you know one way of of, of really getting this is to like go to um, go to a handful of Orthodox synagogues and see uh, how similar worship looks like in those synagogues. To go to a handful of conservative synagogues and to see how similar worship looks in those synagogues. To go to a handful of reconstructionist synagogues and to see how similar worship looks. And to go to a few reform synagogues and see how similar worship looks. Even within those denominations. If you go to five orthodox synagogues, chances are that worship will look pretty uniform. Conservative synagogues, it will also look pretty uniform, but not quite as uniform. Conservative. Conservative. Um, reform synagogues. Um, there's actually a surprising amount of uniformity, but uh, but it's really all over the all over the map. Um, uh, and reconstructionist synagogues is also um, uh, uh, very diverse in in terms of what you'll get and what you'll see in in those different communities. Um, 